Modern Australia is to a large degree built on immigration, and yet many of us don't understand the details of the immigration system. In a new book, Population Shock, Abel Rizvi, a former Immigration Department of official uh, and now a consultant to Mickelson Alexander, uh, goes through much of the history of our immigration system and many of the flaws in the current system. It's a short book, but a fascinating read, uh, part of Monash University Publishers' In the National Interest series. And it's a real pleasure to chat to Abel on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me, Abel. Thank you, Andrew. So what's your migrant story? On my own story. Um, uh, so I migrated uh, uh, with my parents and my two brothers and sister in early 1966. We came directly to Canberra. My father was an academic at the ANU. Uh, that was when uh, Harold Holt, straight after the resignation of Robert Menzies, began the process of dismantling the White Australia policy. So our family of six in that year were the first six of 28 that migrated as non-European skilled migrants. And you write in the book that uh, you were seven years old when you left India and when you got to your Canberra school, there were no brown or black faces anywhere and uh, certainly no other kids with what you call a peculiar Muslim name. Uh, how was that, that experience? Did you, did you feel subject to, uh, to, to racism a great deal? Actually, I didn't, Andrew, um, and, and, and perhaps it's just a function of Canberra being Canberra, but I was accepted very quickly in the group. Um, uh, my teacher sat me around a table of four, uh, and I still remember the other three kids who sat around that table. I know, still know two of them very well, that we're still close friends and we play golf together in Canberra. It's the nature of Canberra, I suppose. But those friends helped me... Helped me um, uh, get along very well, even though when I arrived I had hardly any English and, and uh, the only way we could communicate was through hand signals and that sort of thing. But, but it, it worked very well for me and I actually experienced very little racism. How did you find your way to working in the Department of Immigration? Oh, that's a bit of a story. I, <coughs> I worked for a couple of years um, appointed to the Malaysian Treasury Department in 1987 and 88. I was on secondment there and I returned to the Department of, of Finance in mid-88. And they said, oh, you're back, are you? And they had no plans for me. And they said, oh, look, there's a, there's a vacancy here looking after the budget of the Department of Immigration. And they said, oh, can you do that? And I said, yes, that's fine. And so for three years, I looked after the budget of the Department of Immigration from 1988 through to 1991. And in 1991, I was recruited by the head of the Department of Immigration to go across from being the person in finance who looked after the immigration budget to the chief financial officer in the Department of Immigration looking after their budget more directly. So you went from being a, a watcher to, uh, to a manager in the department itself? I thought you were going to say gamekeeper to poacher, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you, you, you've described it much better than I would have. Was there some uh, suspicion among your new de departmental colleagues in immigration about somebody you'd come across from finance? No, no, they, 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 they knew me quite well. And, you know, for three years, we sort of worked together. Um, I was involved, for example, in doing the, the budgeting side of um, the implementation of the Committee to Advise on, on Australia's Immigration Policies. I was involved in um, 
in uh, uh, budgeting for the the uh, impact of the foil for June. Um, 1989 changes in terms of um, Chinese students and asylum seekers. Uh, I was also involved in costing our first foray into mandatory detention and the setting up of the Port Hedland Detention Centre. There's a lot there, and uh, let me go to one of the uh, particular things you raised, which is uh, the Chinese students. My understanding was that was the creation of the temporary protection visa uh, until Keating then regularised that cohort by giving them permanent status. Is that right? That's right, that's right. Um, and the idea of the temporary protection visa, I mean, as you know, when, when Bob Hawke made the announcement, uh, it, it took all of us, ministers, public servants, by surprise. And so we were we were then chasing our tails to work out how to how to how to how to put um, some legislation around what he had announced, and at that point the idea was to just uh, give them four year temporary protection visas, give them support in terms of Medicare and social services, and then work out what to do after that. Um, um, it, it, it was quite some time before we worked out what actually we should do because the bulk of them had had actually also applied for asylum and we'd never had such a huge number of people simultaneously apply for asylum. Yes, processing 42,000 asylum claims wouldn't have been a straightforward uh, exercise. Uh, and just staying with the uh, your move to the Department of Immigration, um, did the Department of Immigration have more uh, people working for it who'd been born overseas, and, and does it now? I, I think that's that's correct. It did have more people at the time who were born overseas working for it, and and it still does today, although that that may be starting to change under under Mr. Pizzullo. Uh, does how does that uh, shape the character of the place? I mean, it's not surprising in some sense. You'd expect people with an interest in farms to work in the Department of Agriculture, and people with an interest in uh, in uh, veterans to work in the Department of Veterans Affairs. But uh, uh, how does it uh, sh- shape shape the department to have uh, a disproportionate number of people who are themselves migrants? We, we've always had. Uh, in the Department of Immigration, a, a sort of a constant tension between those who are keen to ensure we have strong borders and strong uh, uh, visa processing arrangements in place, and those people who see immigration and its role as being predominantly nation building. And managing that tension has always been, been a challenge. Um, and uh, it's, the, it's the case to this day, I, I imagine, although one side appears to be winning more more than the other at the moment. Um, the other thing, the, the other characteristic of the Department of Immigration that I don't think people realise is how many people in the Department of Immigration are actually people who have worked there almost all their lives and are people whose children go back to immigration. I've met third generation immigration officers. That's extraordinary. Wow. So the institutional knowledge that's there is, uh, is, is immense. But uh, I know you've, you've been critical of the fact that that institutional knowledge doesn't seem to be there in the same way in the, uh, the top echelons now. Well, um, I, I don't want to be political about this, but I think this has been documented in many places. When Mr Pizzullo took over the department it was pretty clear to all the officers in the department that he viewed the border protection and customs functions as uh, warranting greater priority than the visa processing and immigration functions. 
That led to a very large number of senior officers in the department leaving to other places. And at that point, we lost an extraordinary amount of institutional knowledge, which I think uh, uh, we are paying for now. So let's dive into some of the arguments around immigration. You're, uh, you're clearly a fan of how immigration has shaped Australia, as, as am I. And you have a, a beautiful analogy in your, in your book, Abel, uh, about uh, the way in which Australia might be without immigration. You talk about uh, dusty regional country towns in which they've got a few antique shops, cafes that sell flat whites in a mug and monuments listing the names of young men lost to world wars, but in which shop fronts are closing down, there's few children uh, and uh, there's few thriving businesses. Uh, And then you say, very provocatively, without immigration, whole countries would have that character. Can you expand a little more on that argument? Yeah, yeah. If I might just go back to the, to the, to the, the basic structure of the book, and that is it, it seeks to look at what has happened in the period 1950 and, and projects forward to 2050. It divides that period into four stages. The first and, and the four stages essentially follow the, the life cycle of the baby boomers. Childhood, adulthood, old age, and death. Different all countries will go through those four stages. That's inevitable. Different countries will go through each stage at different points in time. So for example, and, and I and I d- delineate those stages using the ratio working age to total population. So during the childhood phase the working age to total population ratio tends to decline unless it's propped up by immigration as it was uh, in Australia immediately post-war. Once the baby boomers reach working age, the working age to population ratio, of course, starts to rise. And it did in Australia from about the mid-1960s, 1970, through to about 2009-10. That ratio just kept on rising. It then starts to fall as the baby boomers get uh, come to old age, and then eventually you reach the point where there is a very large number of deaths and the deaths exceed births and the population begins to shrink. And what I'm saying is some nations have entered that third stage very early. So, for example, Japan entered that third stage in about 1990, We didn't enter that third stage until 2010. That's predominantly because of immigration. Japan has now entered that dusty old regional town stage where their deaths significantly exceed births. And uh, even though Japan is trying to prop things up with some levels of immigration, uh, they will not get very far with that. Uh, At the moment, their population is shrinking by about 500,000 per annum. By the end of this decade, that'll probably increase to a million per annum. Japan will eventually look very much like that dusty old regional town dominated by very old people. Yes, I remember being struck in Tokyo on on one visit. Uh, There was a street protest which had 
the same demographics as a Veterans Day march would in Australia. Uh, it was was really striking to see a, a group of senior citizens with placards walking down the street. But as you say, the average age in Japan now is forty seven. Yes, yes, and it, and it, and it, it, it and that was uh, I think four or five years ago. It, it probably is now approaching fifty. So you talk in the book uh, very articulately about the number of migrants, but you also talk about the way in which the character of the migration program shifted, uh, and in particular the shift of growing temporary migration. Uh, and you say that that, uh, that shift was anathema to long-standing officials in the immigration department. Um, when did that shift occur? Why? And, and why was the department uncomfortable with it? Okay, the, the, the shift, uh, uh, I mean, we were planning for it 18 months before the 1st of July 9, 2001, but the shift in legislative terms took place on that date. Fundamentally, as immigration officials viewed the entry of temporary entrants in large numbers reflecting back to what had happened in Europe and North America, where the bulk of the temporary entrants who had arrived predominantly as guest workers, low-skilled guest workers, never actually left. And immigration departments in both Europe and North America were left with the problem of, well, none of these temporary entrants are actually leaving. What are we going to do? Some of them have children. Some of them now have grandchildren. What to do? And the view of the old-timers in the Department of Immigration was, well, we should never do that. And there are some legitimate arguments for why we shouldn't do that. But what we did on the 1st of July 2001 in Australia was, I believe, slightly different to what was going on in Europe and North America, where people were predominantly being chosen on the basis of a low-skilled job, usually in farm work or construction or hospitality or somewhere like that, and who were never given a pathway to permanent residence. So we did two things that were different to North America and Europe. The first was... We predominantly selected students and working holiday makers, probably very young people, who were going to study in Australia, acquire an Australian qualification, and we then put in place very explicit pathways for those people to permanent residence. So we were never going to get the large cohort of temporary entrants, or we were hoping we would never get the large cohort of temporary entrants who were exploited and abused as they got in North America and in Europe, we were looking for them to become permanent residents because we could see no other way of increasing the migration program without using the overseas student program to do so. So I really enjoyed Peter Mayer's book, Not Quite Australian, How Temporary Migration is Changing the Nation. And uh, he makes, makes an argument in that that uh, while there's a range of downsides of temporary migration, there can be a value in terms of improving the match of migrants to a country. Rather than migrants choosing a country from afar, there's a kind of try-before-you-buy aspect to temporary migration in which people see whether they enjoy living in Australia, Australia sees whether their skills have fitted our labour market, uh, and then they have a process of applying for permanency. Uh, do you see some merit in that argument? Uh, absolutely. That, 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 that is very much the way we were thinking. Um, um, it, we've got to go back and remember that what, what triggered this 
was two years of intense debate in Australia about the rate at which we were going to age. And so the primary objective of, of doing this was to slow the rate of ageing. And we have done that to a significant degree. That decision, on, you know, uh, that, the, the, that change that we made has made Australia the youngest developed nation on the planet. And that carries substantial advantages. It will mean that we will probably be the last developed nation that goes into stage four of the population shock. That is the point at which deaths succeed births. But you don't need temporary migration for that, do you? I mean, you could just, you could just choose permanent migrants who were young through the old-fashioned system. You could, but the only way we could do that would have been to significantly reduce the selection criteria to get the numbers needed. The Howard government has significantly increased selection criteria in order to improve labour market outcomes of the migrants that were being selected. And what the Howard government didn't want to do was to undo the benefit of that. But they wanted more numbers that met the criteria. And the only way we could do that was to bring in students who then upgraded their skills, met the criteria, and then got permanent residence. And you then get this sort of interesting knock-on of industries who become hugely dependent on, uh, on, on these, uh, these migration flows, don't you? So suddenly universities are funded to a, a pretty significant extent by cross-subsidising their, their work from, from international student fees, and farmers come to depend on temporary migrants as, uh, to, to pick fruit crops. Um, and we've seen both of those uh, industries screaming out as, as temporary migration suddenly stopped in recent years. Yes, yes. And, and, and certainly the situation of overseas students and universities has, I think, been very poorly managed by the government. Uh, it, it was government or restrictions on government funding to universities that led them, partly, um, not entirely, to boosting, boosting overseas students' numbers. Um, and then for those universities to be left high and dry by the government when, when the crunch hit of the pandemic was, I think, really quite a short-sighted uh, decision. Uh, many would criticise it more than that. Um, in, terms of, in, terms of, um, in terms of farm work, though, I would view that as qualitatively different to overseas students. Yes, overseas students do do low-skill work whilst they're doing their qualifications, but we know they are on a pathway to permanent residence. The government's introduction of an agriculture visa for low-skill workers, I think, is more similar to what the North Americans and the United States and, and the Europeans have been doing for a very long time. And we know from that experience that exploitation and abuse is rife, and I have no confidence that the government is actually pursuing adequate worker protections to prevent that. The government has said that it's going to provide pathways for these people to permanent residence, but I have seen no evidence of how those pathways will be designed. Um, and I think unless you think about the two issues, both the temporary entry uh, visa po uh, point and the permanent residence point together, the risk is we'll do what the North Americans and the Europeans have done, and that is bring in the guest workers but forget about their pathway to permanent residence. 
Yes, and the uh, abuse of working holiday makers who uh, go go bush in order to get an extra year in Australia seems particularly problematic in a context in which the employer is effectively able to deny them their right to uh, to stay on in Australia if uh, if if they fall out with the employee. Yes, and and uh, that is certainly certainly an issue. Um, I do think, however, the media sometimes gets the reporting of that a little askew. The media tends to describe or use the term backpacker, and the term backpacker is a very loose term and can refer to almost any temporary entrant in Australia, not just working holiday makers. Uh, on, on my experience, the working holiday makers don't work on farms nearly as much as is suggested by the media. Secondly, they do have a tendency to raise complaints much more quickly than other temporary entrants because once they've got their, done their 88 days, they are free to complain to the Fair Work Ombudsman or to the media or to the social media, and they do that. As a result, they're probably not as exploited as other groups. The, big, the two big other groups that I think we don't think enough about, who I suspect are being exploited much more, are firstly the Pacific Island workers. And when the Pacific Island workers scheme was first introduced, it had a lot of very, very good worker protections. Those worker protections have slowly been diluted and they continue to be diluted. And that was always a fear that I had. The other group that we haven't thought about and I don't think gets nearly as much attention in the media as it should, is that from about 2015-16, we had probably the biggest labour trafficking scam using the asylum system that we have ever had in the history of Australia. We now have in excess of 90,000 asylum seekers in the country. A number, you know, that's double the number we had at when Bob Hawke uh, uh, cried. Um, but, of course, the people who were asylum seekers at that time eventually became permanent residents. The bulk of these people are being refused at both the primary stage and at the review stage. There are now almost 30,000 such asylum seekers who have been refused at both stages. They no longer have work rights. They don't have access to Medicare. They don't have access to any social support. The only way they can survive is, is to desperately take farm jobs which are usually, uh, in, in which they are usually vulnerable to extreme levels of exploitation. Now, this problem is not going away and I, I fear the government has no interest in dealing with the problem. They would prefer to sweep it under the carpet. I can't see how you can sweep 90,000 people under the carpet. Yes, and I want to come to uh, some of those delays in a, in a moment, but uh, I'm also fascinated by uh, a discussion of, uh, of the politics of immigration. You, you pack a lot into this 91-page book, Abel, uh, and, uh, and you talk in particular about the tension between uh, Prime Minister Morrison in 2019 announcing that he was reducing what he called the migration program ceiling from 190,000 visas a year to 160,000 visas a year. And then you point out that Josh Frydenberg in the 2019 budget uh, had... Uh, 
the uh, the uh, job growth uh, and and economic growth climbing because of a fork projected increase in net migration, uh, and you're uh, you've you've Couch your words to a large extent in this, but on that point you say the 2019 budget was a duplicitous election document the Treasury should never have signed off on. Uh, tell us about the the tension in the uh, in the way in which the government talks about migration uh, in population contexts and economic contexts. Yeah. Um, the, the, the announcement by Prime Minister Morrison was in March 2019, and as you'll recall, the budget was in April 2019, so only a month apart. So in March, the government is sending the message, we're cutting immigration because we're going to bust congestion. And then a month later, as you say, the Treasurer announces the highest sustained level of net migration in our history. You know, it, 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 either Mr Morrison and Mr Frydenberg weren't talking to each other, or they were sending messages to different parts, different messages to different parts of the Australian community. To the business community, it was, we're going to increase net migration, don't you worry about that. And to other parts of the community, it was, we're cutting migration, ostensibly to bust congestion, but I fear there was no small amount of dog whistle in that messaging as well. And you have a, a lovely passage in the book where you talk about uh, conversations with uh, uh, business leaders who would come to the Department of Immigration and uh, just uh, call on you to uh, to change the criteria in order to get more migrants. Uh, tell us about the character of some of those discussions. Oh, dear. Yes. Um, what, I found, what I found was most extraordinary about those discussions was how unsophisticated they were. Uh, so, so you'd get this smart business person, usually a lobbyist or, or a CEO of a company, and they would say, you know, we're having all of these labour shortages here, there and everywhere. We desperately need um, these workers. Um, um, and I would say, well, what's the problem with the current criteria? And, and they would explain to me the workers they need are highly skilled. They always describe them as highly, highly skilled. And then they would say, but they can't meet our criteria and you'd always be confronted with, well, if they are so highly skilled, why can't they meet the criteria? <laughs> and, and they would struggle with that. So what they would often do is come up with descriptions of the jobs that they were, wanted to fill, and they would exaggerate the way those jobs would be described. So a cleaner would be described as some sort of hygiene, uh, 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 hygiene manager or something like that. Um, you know, quite silly things. We introduced around that time in the, in, in the early 2000s a, a minimum salary requirement in the temporary skilled migration category, mainly because of this downgrading of or, or you know, exaggeration of the skill requirements of a job. And we said you have to pay them a minimum salary. And uh, we also insisted that the salary be in cash terms, so you couldn't do it in, in kind because often that was a way of people getting around the system. And really, the, the, the business people hated that minimum salary requirement because it was so effective. Sadly, since, and, and you know, I, I find this quite scandalous, that minimum salary has not budged since 2013, which means it's just allowed business people to continue 
to degrade the skill level of the people they're bringing in and to reduce the amount they are paid. Uh, I just, for the, for the life of me, I cannot understand why the government has allowed that to happen now for eight years. And one of the things you point out too, Abel, is that uh, those those constraints exist not simply for economic reasons, but for political reasons too. And that one of the re- one of the uh, ways in which Australia has managed to maintain strong public support for our migration program is because most people don't see migrants as robbing jobs. Exactly, exactly. And as long as we maintain a relatively high skilled focused program, I think we can continue to demonstrate that. The issue really becomes at the low skill end, where, as you know, uh, the bulk of our unemployed have relatively few skills. So the unemployed are the people who are really competing for jobs with low skill migrants. Now, I've only been in politics for uh, 11 years, but one of the things that I've noticed shifting over that time has been that early on, the contact we would get about migration would be, uh, will you support my application? And increasingly now, the correspondence coming into me about migration is, can you find out why my, my, my application is taking so darn long? Uh, and one of the ones that, uh, that really struck me uh, uh, last month was uh, a man called Zach Krauss, who's 93 years old and was uh, applying for an aged parent visa. And the department had written back to us saying that his application would be processed in 2064, uh, which is uh, uh, either he is going to be the world's oldest man or else uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty rude thing to be suggesting. Why have the visa processing times blown out so much? The, the answer to that question varies depending on the visa category you're looking at. So in terms of parent migration, um, um, Australia compared to uh, United States, uh, uh, the UK and Canada, acted to restrict parent migration from as early as 1988. So Bob Hawke started tightening parent migration very early on. And that process has continued for a long time, such that the size of our parent category compared to the Canadian one or or the American one or the UK one is much, much smaller. So we deliberately limit the level of parent migration fundamentally because of the long-term costs involved. Now, I know that sounds like an extraordinarily hard-hearted way of looking at this, um, but if you are faced with an ageing population, uh, long waiting queues for various services, particularly health and aged care, you have to ask yourself, if you do allow a large level of parent migration, are you crowding out? those services even further. So we have, mani- we have maintained very tight policies on parent migration since at least 1988. Uh, and so what happened in the, curse, in the case that you've described, unfortunately, is a deliberate outcome of policy, policy supported by successive governments, starting from Bob Hawke. But there are other categories where there have been... Slow Just to process- stop you before you go into that other category, what's, what's going on there, I assume, is that uh, there's no other 
criteria by which the department could choose between those who've, who've applied for parent visas. So if you're doing a point system, presumably you would go for the, you'd, you'd take the people with the greatest number of points, you'd tell, tell everyone else no, everyone would get a quick answer uh, and you'd, you'd do the process again the next year. But I assume what's going on with parent visas is there's no criteria on which they can choose one parent over another? Um, uh, so Bob Hawke include, introduced what is known as the balance of family test, which looked at the number of children the parent had in Australia relative to the number of children the parent had elsewhere. And if the balance of the family wasn't in Australia, the parent would not be eligible. So there have been various category uh, criteria like that introduced that have reduced the number of people applying. But even with all of those criteria, and including financial criteria, um, there is still a very significant excess demand. And those people are processed first in, first served, and as a result, you have the queue that you have. Yes, and first in, first serve really produces a, a, the fairest result in my experience. Uh, but I cut you off as you were talking about uh, delays in other visa categories. So the, 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 the delay that I think is most scandalous was the delay in partner visa places. Um, so these are people who are the spouses or de facto spouses or fiancés of Australian permanent residents and citizens who are sponsoring that partner to come to Australia to join them. Um, throughout oh, the period since 1989, when we introduced the codification of visa criteria, the Migration Act explicitly states that the government cannot cap the number of spouse visas. In 1996, um, John Howard asked me to limit the number of spouse visas. I said to him, I cannot do that, Prime Minister, because the law prevents it. And he said, well, change the law. We went back to Parliament and tried to change the law, and the Parliament said, no, that's outrageous, that you would limit the opportunity to migrate of the partner of an Australian citizen or permanent resident. So the law has been that way for a long time. But despite the law, um, the government has, since around the time Peter Dutton was, was minister, explicitly limited the number of partner visa places and allowed the backlog to grow and the processing times to get longer and longer and longer and longer. In my view, that action was unlawful. Last year, just before the start of last program year, it appears to me the government has at last recognised that its actions were unlawful and decided to start clearing the backlog. So all of a sudden, they increased the number of partner visa places to 72,000. Uh, the previous highest number of partner visa places ever in our history was 48,000. So this was a huge increase, and they've started clearing the backlog. So the processing times have sped up, which is great. But we should have never been in this situation. And it is a really good thing that the ANAO has announced, following encouragement from your colleague Julian Hill, that there should be an audit into the, the government's practices in terms of partner visa processing. And I suspect the ANAO will find the government's practices for five or six years were contrary to the Migration Act. What about the pace of processing for asylum claims? Um, <clears throat> asylum claims are also taking longer and longer, mainly because the backlog, both at the primary level and the AAT level, is now just so long 
and there is so little resources being devoted to the function that uh, those processes are taking a very long time. The problem with processing asylum claims so slowly is you reward the unscrupulous and you penalise the genuine. Why is that? Because the people who are genuine asylum seekers, who are genuine refugees, we should be recognising them as quickly as possible and fast-tracking them to permanent residence because they are genuine refugees and allow them to settle. Leaving them in the processing queue for a long time is just torturing them. For the unscrupulous, who have lodged an asylum claim knowing that it will be refused, the longer it takes, the longer that they have work rights and can continue to work in Australia without any any consequences. Of course, there are consequences eventually because when they are refused, then they're stuck. They're stuck in a shadow world where they will be constantly vulnerable to abuse and with nowhere to go. And the other de- significant delay that uh, I think many of us have noticed has been the delay in uh, processing citizenship applications. Um, here I find it completely unconscionable because uh, these people are already in the country and it strikes me if somebody who's in the country wants to uh, to make a pledge to be an Australian citizen, we ought to welcome them and uh, make sure they can get in the next uh, next uh, ceremony. Uh, what's going on with uh, citizenship processing? What you just described has been long-standing Australian government policy. It was Australian government policy from 1949, when the Citizenship Act was introduced, until September 2005. In September 2005, totally out of the blue, Prime Minister Howard announced, without any reference to any public process or or research or anything, that he would act to make citizenship harder to access. And we have continued to do that. Mr Dutton, of course, made it even harder than, than ever before, including by lengthening the period of time you had to wait before you could get citizenship, and then added to that um, a, a slowing of application uh, of processing times. Whether he was doing that deliberately and what was what was his what his motives were in doing that I, I just can't say but that that certainly happened um, and uh, uh, whether it was because of the arguments he's making about security which I find largely nonsensical given that people have already been through a character test when they got their permanent residence visa or whether it's simply because um, um, he feels these people won't vote for him Remembering, of course, when you become a citizen, the, the, the biggest benefit you get is being able to vote. I don't know. I'd only be speculating on those things. But he's done that, or he did that, in a way that, as you say, was unconscionable. There have been audits of what was happening. Uh, the audits have recommended speeding up the processing. Some efforts have been made in that regard. Some improvements have been made, but not nearly enough. I think I think uh, citizenship applications are some of the easiest applications in the immigration system to process. There is absolutely no reason why they should take more than two or three months. And you talk about this having uh, pretty tangible uh, impacts. Uh, how many citizens would you estimate would have been uh, eligible in the 2019 election if there hadn't been these processing delays? Probably something in the order of a quarter of a million. Wow. 
in a tight election, that's uh, not an insignificant number. No, no, no. And, 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 and in, a, in a public policy sense, it just makes no sense to delay this. I mean, if you're playing politics, yes, okay, I, I might, there might be a, a rationale. But in terms of social cohesion, as you say, citizenship is the best thing we can do to help uh, a, a more cohesive society. Abel, one of the uh, big issues in Australia is the, the level of immigration, uh, you know, we t- whether you express it in terms of uh, net migration numbers or in terms of number of visas granted. What are your views there? Unfortunately, I think the approach that's often taken in both the media and amongst politicians is to focus on debating the number. So, they, you know, I like this number, I like that number. I'll give you an example. In terms of the humanitarian response to the Afghan situation, Australia has announced that it will uh, allocate 3,000 visas. Others have come forward and said, uh, no, no, uh, 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 Mr, I think John Alexander has suggested 10,000. Bob Carr has suggested 12,000. Others have suggested 20,000. I find that a quite meaningless debate. Unless you know how you're going to deliver your numbers and how you're going to process them who you're going to prioritise, etc. All of that discussion about numbers is like, you know, debating what number you'll pick in Tats Lotto. It's meaningless. Uh, um, And so I I think there's a tendency there to put the cart before the horse. The better approach is to look at policies in terms of individual visa categories, make sure that they are well designed, make sure that they are well administered, And you can then estimate how many places you will need for each visa category. You add up what you've got and you come to a number. Now, if you still don't like that number, then what you should do is go back and revisit your policies to change the number. But to come up with an aggregate number and then go back and think about policies is really just quite nonsensical. So we should be talking not about a bigger Australia or a smaller Australia, but instead about a younger, more innovative, more skilled Australia. Absolutely, absolutely. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a fast-growing Australia. Um, that's, a different, that's a different set of issues there. We know that eventually Australia will reach the fourth stage of the population shock where deaths will exceed births. That will probably happen sometime, sometime in the middle of the second half of this century. If we have lower levels of net migration, we bring that date forward. If you have higher levels of net migration, you push that date out. Now, we can debate whether we should bring that date forward or back, and that's a perfectly reasonable debate to make, to have. But you then have to go back to your policy settings and work out, well, what should they be? My guest today has been Abel Rizvi. His book is Population Shock, available in all good bookstores and, of course, online. Abel, thanks so much for a really stimulating conversation. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.